Hi listeners, this is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Whiplin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. If you think AI is important and China is important as well, then this episode should be important too because it covers the intersection of both. Jeffrey Ding discusses what people get right and wrong regarding uh, what China is doing, uh, or at least what it's trying to do uh, with artificial intelligence. At the end, we've also got a 21-minute extract of his talk at EA Global London last October, titled Redeciphering China's AI Dream, a new China AI research agenda. One quick thing is that if you're someone who donates, uh, hoping to have a large social impact, in December, I updated the article on our site uh, that suggests where we think your money can do the most good. Uh, That article is titled, What's the Best Charity to Donate to? Uh, And we'll link to it in the show notes. Uh, We've got a range of different options uh, and also a process that you can follow if you would rather do more of your own independent research. All right, without further ado, here's Jeff Ding. Today, I'm at EA Global London speaking with Jeffrey Ding. Jeff is the lead China researcher at the Center for the Governance of AI, which is part of the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. He produces the China AI Newsletter, and his work has been cited in the Washington Post, South China Morning Post, MIT Technology Review, Bloomberg News, and Quartz, among others. Jeff grew up in Iowa, studied economics, has worked at the US State Department, as well as the Hong Kong Legislative Council, and is currently a Rhodes Scholar studying international relations at Oxford. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Jeff. Thanks, Rob, for having me. It's good to be here. Let's talk about careers specializing in China and what people get right and wrong about AI in China. But first, what are you doing and why do you think it's really important work? Yeah, so I'm a default researcher at the Center for the Governance of AI, where I look at China's AI development. I think it's important because, for one, AI is a really central technology to economic development, military competition, and we should understand how China, as a rising power, is approaching this technology. I think it's also important because it's become a very hot topic, and it's also become an area where we project a lot of things about how we perceive China, how we perceive China's model of technological development. So. Oftentimes, areas where there's a lot of misperceptions are areas where you can make a lot of impact with more grounded research. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, I'm interested to find out how much of the kind of views that people have about China and AI are just projections of our own fantasies or, or fears. But first, um, so you grew up in the US basically entirely, right? Yeah, I was born in Shanghai and then moved to Iowa City when I was three. Okay, so, you, so your parents had spent much of their life in China? Yeah, they came here for grad school. Okay. They came here as in the United States for yeah. grad school. <laughs> We're recording in London. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Have you spent much time in China? I, I guess I'm, I've got so many questions about yeah, China yeah, in yeah. general. I'm wondering, like, maybe yeah, I should yeah, talk to your parents rather than you. But. Yeah. <laughs> I should definitely talk to my dad for mm. computer science stuff because he's a software engineer. But I have gone back to visit grandparents in Shanghai and a neighboring town every two or three years and then yeah. studied abroad for a semester at Peking University, have done a couple internships as well, and then now go back for research every now and then. And you're a fluent Mandarin speaker because you're doing this translation newsletter, China AI, with, with yeah. one A. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what fluency really means nowadays, but <laughs> fluent as in I can plug things into Google Translate and then correct them um, <laughs> afterwards. Yeah. When you go to China, do people kind of regard you as American or Chinese or some kind of confusing mixture? It's funny because my experience at Peking University was pretty tough because a lot of my friends who had more American looking faces, the bar for their language was much lower, whereas <laughs> I was given no breaks. So it was it was a tough experience. But at the same time, I think it's weird because at the same time, they also view me as an insider of sorts. So they're yeah. more trusting with information. Like you might understand those other people don't understand what it's like to be Chinese or to or understand what China is doing. 
Yeah, I have a friend who's uh, has Chinese parents but grew up in the United States almost completely and speaks Mandarin reasonably well, but yeah. not that well. But apparently uh, whenever she makes mistakes in uh, in China, like apparently uh, the people give her a really hard time. Yeah. It's like almost a betrayal somehow of like right. China, not to not be able to speak Mandarin perfectly. Right. You have, you have <laughs> dishonored your mother nation. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, so last year you wrote this paper, Deciphering China's AI Dream, which got a whole lot of attention. Yeah. In brief, kind of what, what were the key messages of, of, of that paper? Yeah. So, so it basically looked at four descriptive things about China's AI development. The first is what is China actually doing in this space? What is the context behind China's AI development? The second is what are the components of different levers that it's pulling to try to spur AI development? Mm. Third is what are its AI capabilities? And then fourth, what are some of the implications for that for national security, economic development, AI safety, and social governance? Yeah. And so there were kind of four myths you wanted to highlight and try, and try to correct with that paper. Uh, what are those four? Yeah. So along each of those four categories, yeah. I use one of the myths to ground some of the analysis. The first in the context is that China's AI strategy did not appear out of nowhere with mm. this AI development plan yeah. issued by the State Council in July 2017. It's part of a long trajectory of focus on science and technology development overall. It's connected with other plans like the Internet Plus plan that's trying to develop Internet of Things. It's linked to a history of strategic planning for technology in areas like aerospace and biotechnology. And it was not just the central government that was moving in this space. Companies were already pushing forward in AI development. Local level governments already had their own AI plans. So in a sense, the central government was following their lead in the AI space. In the second category of components, I wanted to deconstruct the myth that China's AI development plan is based on the actions of a monolithic actor that's just issuing a top-down central command to develop AI. Whereas you do have local governments pursuing their own interests. You have bureaucratic actors sometimes conflicting. You have companies that are setting up their own strategies, and those sometimes conflict with central government as well. In the third category of capabilities, I wanted to deconstruct this notion that China's AI capabilities have surpassed the U.S. or are the world's leading AI power. So I, I analyzed China's capabilities along the lines of data, hardware, research and talent, and then finally the commercial AI ecosystem to kind of rebut that myth. And then fourth, I wanted to rebut the idea that there were no discussions of AI safety or AI ethics in China. So those were the four main arguments in the report. Yeah. Is it, is it the case that does China just have lots of different plans for development in lots of different technologies? And so kind of the fact that they have something about AI is like not especially scary or surprising. It's like, of course they do. They, they probably have something about all these different manufacturing areas too. Yeah. I think Obviously. there's a really interesting misperception in the space where a lot of Western observers think that China was in the lead in issuing this national AI plan and that we now have to catch up to China to have a good national AI strategy. When you read what Chinese strategic thinkers and writers were talking about, they were thinking that they were behind because <laughs> the U.S. White House, Obama administration 2016, had issued a series of three white papers. They thought that Japan was already a robot superpower and had issued a series of plans to develop the robotics industry. So in that sense, I, it, it, there, there is a lot of misperception in this space. Yeah, it's interesting. 
there seems to be a kind of a general phenomenon here that when it comes to technology, kind of everyone feels like they're falling behind or, or, or not good enough. Do, do, do you know what's going on there? I know that there's this kind of incentive for, I guess, especially you know, government organizations to say that they're falling behind because that's a way that they can like appeal to get more funding for, for, right. for their project. Right. Is there anything else going on here? Yeah. So I think that is one component is bureaucratic interests, interest groups have an incentive to say we are falling behind in this space, give us more funding to pursue this type of technological development. I also think that there's something deeper going on here. There's an anxiety about technological development. It's something that when we think about like AI advances, it's something that's so abstract. It gets tangled up with really complicated things like disinformation campaigns, Mm. automation, what does labor mean? What does intelligence mean? And sometimes our response is we just need a plan for that. And there's this assumption that because you have a plan, because you have an AI plan, because you have a nanotech plan, you've solved the problem. (laughs) Whereas actually most of the academic literature on this subject says that central forecasting planning about complicated, uncertain technological developments, which AI definitely fits that bill, is actually oftentimes flawed and doesn't solve anything. It may actually be counterproductive. Yeah. So you must have written some of this paper two years ago. I guess it came out 18 months ago. Is there anything yeah. that you feel in like retrospect, yeah, I nailed this ahead of time and I was, I was ahead of the curve? Is there anything where maybe you feel uh, you, got, you got it wrong with the benefit of hindsight? Yeah, I don't know how much I've nailed. I think the discourse has just matured as mm. more people are asking questions like, what is AI? What are we talking about when we talk about China's AI capabilities? So one lesson I've learned is during that paper, there was some debate at Center of governments of AI over whether we should release this AI potential index that I included in the paper to benchmark China's AI capabilities with US capabilities. And it was a very rough first shot approximation where we came up with different indicators to proxy for a country's data advantage. Mm -hmm. And the proxy for data in that edition two years ago was just a rough mobile users measure Mm -hmm. where Now we have to get to the point where we disaggregate this notion of AI capabilities into different subdomains. So it's not the case that the number of mobile users makes any meaningful impact on which country is going to have a better head start on autonomous vehicles, for instance. So that is one of the big things that I would want to change. And I've tried to change in a written testimony in front of the US-China Commission where to analyze national AI capabilities, I try to cut up this very fuzzy abstract notion into where in the AI value chain is China ahead or the US is ahead or the UK is ahead? Is it at the fundamental technology layer? Like who is producing more and developing more of the AI open source software or who is producing more of the application end products? Who's ahead on the fundamental NLP research, natural language processing research? Who's building more smart speakers and capturing the market in smart speakers, and then also differentiating in terms of different subdomains of AI. Yeah, in my interview with Helen Toner about uh, AI and, and partially about China, we were joking that cause it's like the, China has so many mobile users, so many people using it, so t- Tencent, WeChat, and things like that, that uh, we should be very worried that the People's Liberation Army would just have this fabulous ability to make excellent product recommendations to Americans if they if they tried to. Should should yeah. we actually be? <laughs> is is there any sense in which it's concerning that China has access to like more data? I guess I guess Helen thought that it was like vastly overstated this issue of kind right. of China having a data advantage in, in ML training. Yeah, so I think the implications of the data advantage for capabilities comparing 
who is going to derive more value out of AI is oftentimes overstated. I think a lot of times what's happening there is people are mixing up advantage for authoritarian governments to mm. control social media yeah. and control the population versus advantage of authoritarian governments to increase their overall economic prowess. So I'm not sure that a country that is better at recognizing faces is going to generate that much of a meaningful economic impact. Yeah. Whereas I think a lot of the main economic impacts, and this goes back to your interview with Helen, where she was talking about a good analogy for AI might be electricity, where it's more about how AI can transform a range of productive industries, say mm. smart manufacturing, transportation, logistics, some of the less sexy consumer-facing applications of the technology. Yeah, so in, in, the, in that conversation, we also said that people often draw analogies between AI and nuclear weapons. There's right. going to be some like, nuclear arms race uh, with, with this stuff. And Helen thought that this was actually pretty, a pretty terrible analogy. And maybe a better one would be electricity. There's like, some problems with that as well. Like, for example, with software, it's much easier to potentially like, scale it up very quickly than it is to build lots of electrical infrastructure uh, right. when we were trying to like, scale up electricity. Do you have any ideas for what, what, are, what are even better analogies or, or how we ought to think about AI? So I think electricity is useful in the sense that there are similarities in terms of electricity as a power source that will affect a bunch of different industries. So consumer-facing ones like illumination mm. through lamps, manufacturing-facing ones like powering devices that factory workers used to power sewing machines. And AI in the same sense will be consumer-facing in a broad range of different applications and will also be manufacturing facing in terms of improving the processes by which we make things. Mm -hmm. So I think it's useful along that lens. I think it's also useful because when we talk about electricity, we have a better sense of electricity as a technological system. Electricity in the 19th century, the electrical power system, and I'm drawing from the work of Hughes who wrote this book uh, called Electricity Networks or Networks of Power, where he talks about the electric power system is not just the dynamo or the generator or the transformer that converts the current, but it's about a system of power generation, distribution through transmission lines, electric utilities that are providing the central power, and then being transferred to a factory production system where workers can now run machines at different levels of speed and they're not connected to a central steam generator anymore. So that is one conception of an electricity technological system in the sense of manufacturing. Electricity as a whole is a much broader concept that might also include communications like telegraph messages and how messages are being sent. But electricity offers us a way to talk about a specific electricity-driven manufacturing system that evolved during the 19th century. And I think we need to get to that level of depth and specificity for AI. What are the technological systems that AI will enable rather than just throwing around the term AI anytime something somewhat related to software comes up. Yeah. Do you think that there will be some sort of AI arms race between the US and, and China in, in, in coming decades, or is that just a misunderstanding? Yeah, I think that it goes back to exactly what we we're just talking about, which is what are we saying when we say AI? Yeah. So I think there will be competitive dynamics as it relates to specific AI-enabled military applications. Mm. I don't think it will be on the same scale as the arms race in the Cold War. I think in the Cold War, there were a bunch of unique dynamics, but one aspect that was unique is there was something that was countable about ICBMs, nuclear weapons, that made it so 
we were always thinking that there was some missile gap between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. Yeah. For AI, it's not necessarily the case that we're just counting how much AI is in the military. <laughs> so in that sense, it's more about a system-wide transformation about how you upgrade your military across a whole range of factors yeah. from information, logistics, communications. So I think that's a, that's a poor analogy. And then the other difference is that it's not just about the weapons applications that will be competitive. It's about these system-wide applications who will be able to adopt AI across different manufacturing systems to enable wider growth in the entire economy. You mentioned that it's kind of a myth that there's not thinking going on inside China about AI safety and, and risks from artificial intelligence. It, yeah, tell us about that. What do Chinese thinkers, um, what perspective do they have on this? Yeah, I think the first starting point is the myth is partly a product of the fact that we are not as familiar with China's media ecosystem and not reading Chinese language materials. So I came to a lot of writings about Chinese views on strong AI and artificial general intelligence by reading a 500-page book put out by Tencent and the Chinese Academy of Information Communications Technology, which is a government-sponsored think tank. So in that book, they reference the AI AC Lomar principles and provide a breakdown of those principles, what they mean. I've also translated work by one of the leading contemporary Chinese philosophers, one of the leading Chinese contemporary philosophers, Zhao Tingyang, and he talks about the long-term worries of superintelligence. Zhou Zhihua is a professor at Nanjing University. He leads one of the strongest um, AI fundamental research labs in China at Nanjing University, and he talks about how we shouldn't touch strong AI at any cost in the China Computer Federation's weekly journal where top computer scientists discuss the issues of the day. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of discussions about risks of artificial general intelligence, and we're, that's only one slice of what we mean by AI ethics and AI safety if we're talking about discussions about robustness, technical standards to ensure that there's no malfunctions and improve reliability of AI systems. There's much broader discussions happening there and also about applications of AI and privacy and other ethical considerations. Now, there are areas that are off limits because of censorship and political sensitivity. So there's not discussions about facial recognition and the ethical implications of disproportionately targeting ethnic minorities with facial recognition, for instance. Yeah. So I think it's careful not to take this too far, but I think it's also important to recognize that, you know, Chinese people are people too, and they have, <laughs> they care about ethics and they yeah. care about what advances in AI will do for their livelihoods and their lives. Yeah, it sounds like the, the conversation might actually not be that different. And I guess, and I suppose maybe there's quite a lot of information flowing over from the West because so many other people involved can read English. So, you know, Nick Bostrom writes his book, maybe people can read that if they want to. Yeah, yeah. I do think that there is much more information transfer from the top Chinese thinkers reading the top work in English in the space than the other way around. Yeah. So... I guess in, in the West, we've got kind of all of these uh, cliches about artificial intelligence. I guess some of them come from movies. Some of them probably come from like deeper older culture. You've got like Terminator, Blade Runner, all of these kind of pre-existing concepts that people have. Are the ideas, are the, like, the pre-existing kind of cultural cliches similar in China or, or are they different in any, in any important ways? Yeah, one thing I've noticed is there's a lot of discussions about AI through the context of space for ah, some reason. So Brian Shea and I translated an article by Fu Ying, who was, uh, I think, China's ambassador to the UK, actually, yeah. and now 
leads a group at Tsinghua University looking at the implications of AI for international security. So in her essay, she talks about a community of shared future for mankind and the idea that AI could become the Mars invasion challenge that unites China, the US, Russia, and the rest of the world. Recently, there was a sci-fi movie called Wandering Earth based on a book by Liu Cixing, one of China's leading science fiction writers. And in that movie, the astronauts are fighting against this AI named MOSS that controls the ship and has turned against humanity. So some of these discussions happen through the context of now just to space. Yeah. Sounds like 2001 A Space Odyssey. I guess, okay, so so is there just a lot of interest in, in space in China in general? I guess, I suppose maybe it's a bit like how the US was in, in the 60s when there was a greater sense of progress. For, and, and so China's like building stuff so quickly that they can kind of imagine going to space, whereas it seems like kind of the US is sometimes flat out just building a block of apartments. So the idea of actually yeah. going, going to Mars is a little bit more of a stretch. Yeah, no, I think that that could be part of it. I think I think there is something valuable about studying science fiction, just because it seems to be a good medium for us to play out these long-term scenarios, futuristic scenarios. So I have translated interviews by Liu Cixing, where he also talks about AI development seems to be something that he's very interested in. So I don't know if there's a meaningful cultural difference there, but I do think science fiction is an interesting medium to see how ideas about this space are being played out. Yeah. I guess that, that seems kind of hopeful to me. I, I'd rather have people dreaming about how AI can help with space colonization than about like, I guess conflicts on Earth is maybe the worst way of thinking about it. Whereas with space, it's kind of empty. It's more hopeful. <laughs> we, yeah. we, we can all like go and colonize it as a, as a species or it seems to give you like a, a broader, less adversarial perspective perhaps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in the US and the UK, there's been like particular people who've been raising um, fears about risk from AI, like yeah, Elias Yukowski, Stuart Russell, Nick Bostrom, uh, writing various books about this. Are there kind of any particular figures in China who are familiar with like the technical side of AI who are kind of worth worth knowing about and keeping your eye on? I would say, I think Zhou Zhihua at Nanjing University, he comes from a technical background, leads an AI lab, publishes in some of the top forums, and he has written articles about how we shouldn't touch what he calls tr- strong AI. I don't think there's as mature of a discussion about AI safety as some of the names that you just mentioned and sort of the groups that have developed in the UK, US, and across Europe. But I do think that there are some people in China thinking about this stuff. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Whenever we, we talk about China on the show, I'm a little bit torn between wanting to be like just realistic and frank about the fact that the Chinese government does things that I yeah, disapprove yeah. of and that I imagine most listeners would disapprove of. And also thinking sometimes there's a bit of a double standard that we have between like things that China does things that kind of we're doing. And then we like find it more, crit- we're more critical because it's in kind of another country and it seems so foreign. So I, yeah, I was thinking, is, is it kind of a double standard, you think, between us worrying so much about Chinese surveillance, but then maybe giving a free pass to the NSA or Palantir or kind of the, the sort of surveillance that people are just used to within within the United States or, or the UK? Yeah, I think that there has to be a distinction made between the structures and the vehicles surrounding surveillance. Yeah. So in China, there's not much of a community that can push back against some of these more invasive surveillance efforts. There are some think tanks like Nandu Personal Information Protection Bureau that are pushing for more protections of personal information, but most discussions of privacy are about protections from companies losing financial data and then your bank records being leaked. Whereas in the US, 
yes, there is something that Shoshana Zuboff at Harvard calls surveillance capitalism. Mm. And you mentioned stuff like the NSA and wiretapping, but there is a system in place where you do have you do have opportunities for whistleblowers to come forward and civil society to push back against these efforts. Yeah. So there's a sense in which maybe like the technical capabilities are not so different, but then we might have more trust that that power will, is less likely to be abused in the United States. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would say I would say that's that's largely right. Do you think it would be possible for a future US administration to to reach out to China and establish like really deep cooperation on AI safety issues or is that just not not going to be practical? I think it's already happening depending on how broadly you define AI safety. So right now there are standards alliances among different firms that include Chinese banks who are trying to implement things in the area facial recognition for personal identity authentication. So you have US companies, Chinese companies, international companies working together to come up with what is the best standard to balance a bunch of different things in terms of allowing facial recognition to substitute for us typing in passwords and forgetting passwords and losing passwords. And in one sense, that isn't what we think of when we talk about AI safety and controlling super intelligent AI agents. But in another sense, it serves as a kind of toy example of how we're trying to think about what is the facial recognition system that's going to be the most accurate? How is it going to balance between a bunch of different things like costs, computing costs, efficiency, how many facial features do you need? And all of these are attributes of systems that companies and people will need to agree on. They may have implications for broader AI safety issues in the future. So I think current, I guess, what we would call AI security issues, preventing like to have a good facial recognition identity authentication system, you also need to have things that protect against cybersecurity risks, mm-hmm. right? So those would all be things we'd be concerned about for larger, broader issues of AGI safety. And these discussions are already happening right now. So there were some recent talks on AI ethics and standards, which I heard that they stalled because the US wasn't keen to negotiate with China, uh, well, supposedly while they were using their technology for authoritarian purposes. Mm. Think, was, was, that, was that a good move or should the US kind of be, be willing to, to, to negotiate on these issues regardless? Yeah, I haven't heard what, um, what discussions were stalled. I think that there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes in technical standards bodies yeah. that don't often get covered in the media. And there's a lot of stuff happening in track two, track 1.5 dialogues that don't get covered in the media because there's no news angle hook to saying, oh, we had a nice bureaucratic exchange meeting where we talked about things. But there is a nice hook that says we're in a cold war and all things are screwed. We're not talking. Yeah, interesting. I suppose, I mean... There's, a, there's, a, there's an issue where that what gets covered can, can create the reality. I, I do worry that because it's a more exciting story, and I suppose also just because it's like so easy to tap into people's xenophobia for uh, sure, like other countries, and I suppose China in particular is a rising power, that you know that will start out as a myth and then it will become reality. Is that something yeah. I should worry about? I think there is some sense where it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So that's why I've been very strong to come out against this Cold War, new Cold War, new tech Cold War meme. Yeah. Uh, been very strong to actually question this idea of decoupling as well. Yeah. I don't think anyone has come up with a good measure of decoupling, but we just assume that decoupling is happening and the internet is splintering. So I think that oftentimes 
the difficulty here is it's also an issue with understanding the technical details of AI. So mm. when something becomes so abstract, you can cherry pick anything and say, oh, look at this one domain of AI. There's some decoupling happening here. That means that the entire system has decoupled. Yeah, before we started recording, you were saying that kind of one of the problems is that people talk about China and AI in China in such in such abstract terms, I suppose, because they like lack any concrete details. What kind of effect does that have? And I mean, maybe could we just like actually gather more like empirical information and that would potentially massively improve the conversation? Yeah, I think I think you just have to be more precise about your writing. I think there is a trade-off here because on the one hand, you want to be parsimonious yeah. and you can't write a headline that says X company in China has made a specific improvement in this algorithm. You yeah. have to write a headline in some way. So I'm understanding of the need to be parsimonious. Mm. I think then the obligation is for people who do have more flexible word counts to be more precise with their language. So in my writing for the newsletter and for my reports, I try to limit the use of AI as much as possible. And then also, whenever I reference China, I try to reference either the, sp- the Chinese Communist Party leadership or specific local governments or a specific Chinese company or a Chinese think tank rather than take one person's words as a proxy for the entire country of a billion people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How much is AI research in China being led by private companies versus the government? And kind of is, is the distinction between the two like sharper or or less clear than, than in the US? On research, very much private companies. Yeah. So the top labs are at Baidu, Tencent, Alibaba, ByteDance. There are some labs in Chinese Academy of Sciences, much closer tied to the government. USTC, much closer tied to the Chinese government, US University of Science Technology of China. But I think most of the leading fundamental research is happening in the private labs. Yeah, interesting. I guess the, the same is true in the US. So it's in both cases, maybe it's just private companies doing most of the work, would you say? Yeah, I think in terms of the fundamental basic research, for sure, in private companies and in universities. Yeah. And then the government, I guess, sometimes does applications. Although to, I can't think of that many cases of like the US government using AI, maybe outside of intelligence. Yes. Yeah, so actually, if you look at There's a cool data set from R&D Magazine where they come out with 100 of the top innovations each year. And I was looking through some of these data sets, and actually there are some AI-related advances. And many of them do come from U.S. labs, so the Lincoln Laboratory, Argonne, for example. And yeah, many of them are more about specific applications. I think I saw one about defense against cyber attacks, cyber defense systems empowered by AI algorithms. So I think the U.S. national labs are also doing a lot of interesting work in this space. Yeah. You mentioned that, that during the, the nuclear arms race, one of the things that pushed it forward very aggressively was this thing that both sides thought that the other side was way was way ahead. And so yeah. they're both like plowing lots of money into it, trying to like yeah. avoid falling behind. Yeah. And I guess one way we could tamp down on that phenomenon in AI is to have a better measure of the capabilities of, of either side. So like, what is, the, what is the least bad way of trying to measure like what actually are China's capabilities in, in artificial intelligence? And I suppose vice versa as well. How can China like have confidence in what the US can and can't do? Yeah, I think, I think in some sense it's, much easier to measure who is leading in integrating AI in the economic domain. Mm. So for that, it's relatively straightforward to come up with an approach to do that. And I think consulting companies like McKinsey, PwC, they can all do that. And it requires differentiating among both breadth and depth. Mm. So looking at 
AI across a bunch of different domains because you could have a world in which China leads in one subdomain. So mm. Chinese natural language processing is different from English natural language processing. And it makes sense that Chinese companies will be ahead in yeah. Chinese NLP and Chinese NLP applications. In the military realm, I think it's much harder to measure because a lot of the applications will not be tested in real world battle scenarios. So you can do simulations of say, drone swarms, mm. but you don't have real world, world data for that. Whereas in the economic realm, you do have real world data for what is actually happening. Yeah. I guess yeah, one, one way that people are suggested of trying to, trying to quantify AI capabilities is looking at just the amount of compute power that people have. So how many like processes do they have, like, yeah. <laughs> which is potentially going to be quite a limiting factor on how much people can actually apply ML algorithms, even, even once they have them. How do you think things are going to play out with compute? It seems like there's a bit more saber rattling now about like export restrictions on on processes. Do you think that in, in the future it might be that the case that like, there's a, a lot less movement of compute hardware between the US and China or China and other countries? Yeah, I do think that is a very salient lever of influence, compute capabilities. I think that that will depend on efforts China's making to develop its indigenous semiconductor industry. I think there are also open questions as to whether if you just have enough money, can you eventually just buy as much compute as you want? Yeah. At the same time, that makes it that you can still track how much compute people have. So yeah. I think it's it's definitely an issue to keep an eye out for in the future. How did China, it, it seems to me like China fell way behind on semiconductor manufacturing, despite the fact that they're like at the cutting edge of manufacturing lots of different items that behind the US and I guess, and I guess Taiwan in yeah producing like in the kind of the, the fabs that they have for doing that. How did that happen? It's kind of a surprising turn of events to me. Yeah, I think it's a long history. They've been trying to catch up in making chips for I think around 40 years, did a translation <laughs> where we talked about the long history of these failed efforts. And I think part of it is the cultural revolution took away like a whole generation of leading academics and technicians and scientists in this field and had them go sweep toilets and clean up toilets. And you lost like a generation that was also going to train the next generation. So there's a lag there. It's a much higher tech a higher barrier of entry field than other fields of manufacturing that you mentioned. Yeah. So there's a lot of learning by doing gains where the firm that is able to get an advantage in one generation is going to have the lead in making the next generation. And there's constantly technical iteration in the field to get thinner and thinner wafers. So I think that sometimes locks in the winners and gives yeah. TSMC that incumbency advantage. So I think there's a lot of factors there. Yeah, it's also requires billion-dollar capital investments and long-term payoffs. So if you miss with a couple of plants, there's more, I think, variance of you know, misguided policy in this area as well. Yeah, interesting. So it sounds like that might persist if it's persisted for the last few decades. Or maybe China will keep kind of catching up to where things were five or 10 years ago. And then but, but by the time they get there now, they're, they're behind what's new. Yeah, that has been the trend. I think that there's a system-wide variable here, which is just the degree to which technical iterations in the field increase the efficiency. And I think that is starting to diminish where at some point, maybe seven nanometers is not that much better than 15. So that could provide an opportunity for Chinese companies to catch up to some extent. Uh, because the progress is just going to slow down because we're hitting kind of physical limits. And so eventually everyone ends up at the same place. Yeah, that that could be it. And then it's it could just be about 
more about cutting costs or efficiency in some other way. Yeah. So you mentioned this expression, uh, community of shared future for mankind, which I think has been promoted by uh, Hu Jintao and then Xi Jinping. And I think it's meant to kind of be an underlying principle for China in, in terms of how it conducts its international relations. What does that mean? And is it something that people really pay attention to in practice? Or is it a bit more of just a, just a slogan? I see it as more of a slogan. Yeah. I do think that slogans and rhetoric to some extent do matter, as we talked about before. But I see it more as a slogan. And I don't think it means that China is not going to care about relative gains in a wide variety of domains. But I do think that it is a concept that should be paying attention to. And then also that there are domains where things that benefit China will also benefit the world. So we have this idea that everything here is a zero-sum game. Mm. But there are things like improving the applications of AI for drug discovery and cancer research. Yeah. That's going to benefit China. But if China does good in that area, it's going to benefit the entire world as well. Yeah. So I guess the idea of it was that China was now going to think more about how the rest of the world was going. Oh, like it's now more integrated with the rest of the world. So it has to take an interest in making sure that the world as a whole, the whole system is functioning because kind of we're all in it together. I guess that's, so that's the angle. I suppose there's a positive angle on that, which is yeah. China will contribute to solving global problems. I guess there's also the angle that it's like, no, now it has to take a greater interest in other countries for its own sake, which could potentially right. <laughs> have a negative side to it for, you know, if you're Vietnam or the Philippines or something. Yeah. Yeah. The negative angle was an interesting point that I hadn't considered. I think the positive angle you could see in climate change, where it's very clear that a lot of Chinese cities and areas, especially on the coast, are going to be devastated if climate change continues. And you see subsequent more investment in global climate change initiatives. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's this other slogan. Uh, it's like a one, one, one world under heaven or one kingdom under heaven. Yeah. Tianxia, Tianxia, Tianxia. Yeah. What does that mean? I, I, I read the Wikipedia article and I was still a little bit baffled having, having gone through it. Yeah. So this also comes from Zhao Tingyang, who yeah. mentioned earlier is a Chinese contemporary philosopher. I think he's at Tsinghua. And he wrote the article about the short-term concerns and long-term worries about AI. And he brings up that term again, Tianxia. I also don't really understand it completely. I think it's the (laughs) idea of basically, it's basically an idea of world government and applying and taking some idea that was important in imperial China about how the emperor was the ruler of all under heaven. Yeah, And it's the idea that the this world government will be able to unify the world and will be able to solve a bunch of like public goods and collective action problems. Yeah, so I had the same reaction. This I'm like, is this good or is this terrifying? <laughs> <laughs> I suppose, I mean, it's not actually that different perhaps than how a lot of people think of the United States where it's, I mean, the US takes a big interest in what happens everywhere because it regards itself as kind of a global power and has an interest in things everywhere going well for its own economic sake. So I suppose we shouldn't single China out here by any means. But Well, I think so to, to clarify, the world government would not be like a Chinese run global government under Zhao Tingyan's conception. A cynic might say that because you're using a concept rooted in Chinese it's, history that talks yeah. about the Chinese emperor, yeah. um, there may be other giving that impression. But yeah. 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 <laughs> well, I suppose, I mean, you have to use, I guess, like a, a concepts from, from your own culture. This doesn't make sense. There's this book, AI Superpowers by uh, Kai Fu Li, which he, uh, kind of paints this picture of Chinese AI researchers and entrepreneurs as maybe working and studying uh, even harder than their counterparts in, in the West. Do you think that's accurate or is that maybe just a stereotype? Yeah, I think I... My usual reaction to these things is that cultural differences are usually essentialist and structural factors are probably a better explainer for these things. It seems that the more people that I talk to in the venture capital space and the tech space, 
they consistently talk to me about how Chinese researchers and Chinese entrepreneurs just do work harder. I don't know if that really makes that much of a difference. Mm. So I've also heard stories about people clocking in on this 996 schedule where they work from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. for six days a week. But for two of those hours, they're watching TV. They just have to be there because they clock in. There's also been recent protests against the 996 culture on GitHub from Chinese workers. So I think there is some backlash to some of this. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I guess when I was in China, it had this. I had this very strong sense that people were working harder. I guess, mm. or at least like the service culture was a lot more intense. Yeah, uh, like people were just willing to do anything. So I yeah. think we, we got this Airbnb place, and like within a, we said, oh, there's this like room that someone's going to be sleeping in. It'll be great if there was like um, it was more sound insulation right. for that room. And like within a day, they managed to install an extra wall. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm not sure whether that's typical. Maybe that. I guess no, that, that I, really made an impression on me. Just arriving in the country is like you install a wall within a day. That's insane. No, the yeah. the more. I, I do. I talk to people who have similar stories. Yeah, but I guess it's a, yeah, especially in knowledge work, it seems like uh, working more hours is, does not always necessarily make you more productive. Yeah. Also, I just don't know if it's sustainable. So yeah. maybe you just. I mean, from a very very rationalist perspective, maybe because you just have more of a labor supply, you can just work your population harder. Yeah. Um, but, but, but I suppose as people get wealthier, maybe maybe they want to take more leisure time. And yeah, yeah, I guess there's a bit of a gold rush perhaps on at the moment as well. There's like lots of opportunities to make a lot of money right now that perhaps might settle down once the country reaches like technological maturity to a greater degree. Yeah, I do think some of this can be explained by a development gap. So there are not that many data labeling factories in the US, but mm. there are rings of them across third tier, fourth tier cities, rural towns in China, because people just are more willing and have to do that sort of hard labor where for 12 hours of the day, they're labeling ladders as ladders as as movable or not movable. So yeah, that is just a development difference. Yeah. So obviously we'll stick up a link to this paper, Deciphering China's AI Dream. Are there any misunderstandings about China and AI that that we haven't covered that you think might be in listeners' heads that would be good, good to clarify? Yeah, I think one thing that I've been reading about a lot lately is the social credit system. Hmm. So this ties into a lot of things that we're talking about in which people who have researched what's actually happening in the social credit system, for example, Jeremy Dom at Yale Law School, he says that when Western observers look at what's happening in China and the social credit system, they're looking through a glass darkly, that they're projecting their own worst case fears about what the social credit system could become, and then saying that's what's happening in China. Whereas actually other people who have been researching the social credit system, say it's a very low-tech system Mm. of blacklists, uh, credit scoring that isn't using machine learning algorithms for now, even though there are vague claims that they're going to integrate AI and big data into these systems. So I think that is another misperception, the idea that the social credit system is a very high-tech AI-empowered system, where maybe that is part of the vision or part of these vague proclamations, but it's definitely not what's happening on the ground right now. Yeah, that, that's that's definitely my understanding. People have a bit have looked into it more closely. Is that it's in many ways not that different than what we already have in the West. We already have like a credit score for financial things, and of course the government keeps track of people who like commit crimes and don't pay their fines and things like that. We're not shocked by that. I suppose. Do, do you think that people should be worried about like what it could evolve into? Though it does seem perhaps there is more of an appetite for turning it into something that's more of a like a system for social control than than, than, yeah. than people would tolerate in the United States. Yeah, I definitely think that there should be concerns about what it could turn into. Yeah. So even today, I think already in application, I think New York Times reporting has revealed this. New York Times report by Paul Mosier 
which states that facial recognition systems are being used in neighborhoods, not just in Xinjiang, outside of Xinjiang, in different provinces, where they're counting up the number of faces identified as Uyghurs or ethnic minorities. And if it's a certain number, a threshold that's exceeded within a certain time frame, then an alarm goes off. So this is something that, you know, there would be strong pushback against in yeah. other countries. So I, I don't want us, I don't want us to come away with this saying there are no differences. I yeah. think we should just be more precise and specific about what the differences are and where the similarities are. Yeah. All right. I'd like to move on and talk a bit more about the relationship between China and other countries uh, looking beyond just AI. So it seems like over the last few years, I guess the US in particular has kind of taken a more adversarial stance towards China. Do you think that is a good move that there are things, you know, there's just been these like frustrating issues that the US maybe hasn't been addressing with China over the last decade? Or is it kind of ultimately futile because just China is not going to be moved on questions of, you know, intellectual property or, you know, its relationship with its neighbors? Uh, And basically, we're just going to damage the relationship without much gain. Yeah, I think it's a good move to be more adversarial in certain areas. I don't think that the move to consider China as our existential enemy, where we have to be against them in every issue is the right direction to go forward. And I think that there's good evidence that being more aggressive and pushing for more in negotiations can lead to China agreeing to things. So Hmm. when we have won WTO disputes against China, they have had to comply. And when China has won WTO disputes against us, we have had to comply. So I think that having dispute settlement mechanisms with teeth, like the ones in the WTO, and yeah, having more dispute settlement mechanisms with teeth would be helpful. So yeah, countries like the US kind of face this trade-off perhaps between you know, fostering a cooperative international culture and relationship with, with, with China and also wanting to speak out about bad things that they see happening in China, right. like, like treatment of Uyghurs or uh, you know, things that are, that are happening in Hong Kong. Yeah. I, I suppose it's actually is quite a stark trade-off potentially, or, uh, or it's like it's not obvious what, what you ought to do because you know, speaking out about the Uyghurs, it's not clear that you know, that's actually going to have any positive effect and, and it might damage relations with China on, on, on other important issues. Do you have any view on, like, is, is it worthwhile for the EU and US to you know, speak out about human, human rights issues within, within China, or is that just maybe not actually going to have any practical impact? I don't know what the practical impact will be, but I think, I think it's hard to say what the best strategy is going to be. I don't think there's a lot of research comparing, for example, speaking out versus trying to back channel things. And I think when people try to say that speaking out is bad or that speaking out trades off with something, I think they're misinterpreting the notion that if there's a problem, a bunch of people can have different roles. So I think that there is a big role to be played for speaking out. I think there's a big role to be played for trying to back channel things. I think there's a big role to be played for, hey, it's sometimes, you know, like some people just don't talk about certain issues. So like some people are just like working 12 hours a day and have to like you know, can't just like take up these concerns as like their guiding force in life. So for me, I've tried to like at least do research on what I think my contribution can be, which is looking at what is happening with regards to facial recognition and applications of facial recognition in Xinjiang. It's I think it's probably worth it for governments to speak out. I mean, before governments spoke out or also activists and media reports and other people spoke out. I don't think the Chinese government even acknowledged that these re-education camps existed. Uh And now they acknowledge them and they frame them as political re-education camps rather than internment camps or concentration camps. 
but at the very least that they had to acknowledge that these things were happening. So there's a world in which, yeah, not speaking out, it would have just been hidden even more. So yeah, I think it's probably on balance good for governments to call this out. Yeah. So there's a fair bit of concern, I guess, in, in, in the US and in some parts of Europe about Huawei building kind of 5G networks. And I saw this interesting tweet pointing out that if you can get the NBA and, and Blizzard to kind of bow to Chinese government concerns about exactly what they're saying, you know, what would happen if you needed a Chinese company to be delivering kind of all of the replacement parts you needed basically for your entire phone network? Uh, it leaves you like somewhat vulnerable to, you know, being told what you can and can't say because, uh, you know, otherwise perhaps you're just your, your 5G network is going to stop functioning after a couple of months without the ability to repair it. Do you think that is that, is that a legitimate concern or is that just kind of scaremongering? Well, it, I think it's a legitimate concern. I think there's always dependency concerns when you rely on a sole source supplier for key inputs. I think that there's also a concern for Huawei because if they would ever capitulate to Chinese government demands on this issue, then all of their services become suspect yeah. across the world and they have interests across, I think, 100 80 countries. Yeah. So I think it cuts both ways. So I guess it's something that they could maybe do once, but then the concern would be, well, it's like very financially costly, and then people just will never trust them again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's interesting. So yeah, there's this book I really like, um, Destined for War, I think by uh, Graham Allison. Um, he's, he's this international relations specialist, and he's uh, in the book talking about uh, the relationship between the US and China uh, in the 21st century and, and concludes that there's uh, I, guess, I guess no fundamental kind of interest that the U.S. has that's uh, in conflict with the, with the core interests of China uh, or vice versa. Uh, so even though there's, um, there's lots of areas where there could be friction between the two countries, uh, fundamentally the two uh, should be able to get along because uh, the issues where they conflict are kind of secondary concerns for both countries. Um, do, do you think that is right in the big picture and maybe should be talked about more if, if that's the case? I guess the key question would be what is his dependent variable is, is the idea of just that these disputes will never escalate to a full-on nuclear war. Yeah, I guess the argument is that, for example, Germany and Russia or, or like, you know, Nazi Germany and like the UK, yeah. just like more fundamental, they were, they were much closer to begin with right. and they had like much greater, there was a lot more tension and like the, there was a lot more pressure, I guess, for war because sure. the things that one side wanted were things that the other were very important to the other side. Sure. I guess, for example, like one of, one of the like the tensest things between the US and China might be over Taiwan. Right. The thing is that that's something that's very important to China and it's kind of it's kind of important to the US, but it's like it's not like at the top of the list of the US's priorities in, 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 the, in the scheme of things. You wouldn't think it's something that they'd be willing to risk a nuclear war over is kind of the, the independence of, of Taiwan. And I suppose it's it's a slightly hopeful thing, I think, that he was trying to say that although there is like some pressure that will create conflict between the two countries, right. it shouldn't escalate because ultimately like one side should always be willing to capitulate on these issues because there's like no, there's no one thing where both of them care just overwhelmingly about it. Yeah. I don't know if I see that as that hopeful okay. of a message <laughs> that the US would just be willing to capitulate if China tried to like yeah. conquer Taiwan. Yeah. Um, but I do think that there some of the overall trends that that is pointing to, which is we've had no interest, major interstate war since the advent of nuclear weapons, where the benefits from conquest and territorial conquest are much lower now than they were um, for World War I, World War II, just because I think some of the impulses for Germany's aggressive behavior was to secure more like natural resource supplies, whereas now have an expanded trading system and more interdependence in the world economy. So I do think that there are good system trends that point towards peace, at least from major 
conflicts. Do you know if there's been any reactions in China to kind of stories about Russian bots posting on social media to, to influence elections in other countries or just in general engaging in disinformation? I suppose that there's like two ways you could see it. One would be yeah. uh, they might worry about being a victim of like similar disinformation campaigns from overseas. Or on the other hand, they might be like interested in potentially using similar methods to Russia in, in, in future if there's like when, yeah. they have, when they have conflict with other countries. Yeah, so there has been one reported case, alleged case of China purchasing Russian AI bots to uh, attack the Twitter feed of, I believe his name is Guo, last name is Guo. He's like this tycoon who left China and claimed that he is a dossier on the scandals of high-profile Chinese leaders. Hmm. And after you posted about that, there was a massive Twitter campaign where a lot of people commented and tried to take down his Twitter account. So that was one alleged case of using Russian AI bots. I think the disinformation tactics are different between China and Russia. So Russia has a very experienced, specialized group. I think it's the Internet Research Agency. And they had very sophisticated tactics to target specific voters in the U.S., for example, African-Americans with memes and Instagram posts that were like meant to troll and also claim that the white media was wrong about any different issue. So that's a very specific targeted campaign that's meant to sow chaos. And they wanted chaos in a U.S. presidency, which they got with Donald Trump. For China, I think the interests aren't as specific. I don't know if they would prefer Trump versus another president. Whereas yeah. for Russia, there is a clear preference for influencing and sowing chaos. Whereas you may you could argue that China actually wants more stability. So the tactics are different and the interests may be different. Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a really good point. I mean, there is a sense in which it's not, I'm not sure why it is so great for Russia to just have like chaos and, and weakness in the, in the United States. It seems like that creates problems for, or potentially can create problems for, for Russia as well to make things more unstable. And it does seem like definitely China probably would have preferred to just like have more of the status quo, just like more stable government, more, more continuation of the policy that they'd been for 20 years. Yeah, um, yeah. Which I guess is yeah is one kind of uh, protection against uh, China trying to, trying to mess with the US too much. But I suppose I, I have wondered, it seems like, so Trump is taking a pretty aggressive stance towards China compared to previous presidents. You know, could China try to hack emails or like try to you know release his tax returns if they wanted to basically do, play the same game that Russia did, but but to get rid of Trump because uh, he's like a dispreferred candidate? Yeah, I think it's hard to say how much of this trade war and conflict is a product of Trump specifically, if you're thinking about it from the Chinese perspective, or if it's about structural more systematic and yeah. systematic changes. And then if you're being even more Machiavellian, I think the assessment is that Trump has been overall bad for the U.S. as a whole. So if China wants to gain vis-a-vis the U.S., that Machiavellian instinct would say, keep Trump in power. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, so they might not like it because of the trade war aspect, but then they, maybe they like the fact that yeah, Trump is just weakening the U.S. in general or like weakening respect for the United States, among other countries, which like creates a vacuum that China can then fill. Um, yeah, that could be one case. Trump has been not definitely not positive for the U.S. system of alliances. Yeah, and I guess uh, maybe he's also more isolationist, so it's like maybe less likely to intervene in some ways. Okay, so a year or two ago, 80,000 Hours uh, published this article, a new recommended career path for effective altruists, China specialist, uh, which got a lot of people interested in using their careers to try to improve relations between China and the West or just find ways to contribute to solving problems in China itself. 
I haven't gotten that far. I think some of those people then struggle to figure out like exactly what they should do to try to become experts in some some aspect of, of China. And I think it's kind of a failing of 80,000 hours that we haven't been able to give more, more concrete suggestions to people. So do you, yeah, do you have any suggestions for someone who wants to become a China specialist? Like where where might they where might they begin? And I guess in a sense, China specialist is just almost too broad a category. I feel a little bit, a bit bad that we're talking about it at such a level of abstraction. Maybe we should break it down into, into more specifics. Yeah, no, I think you're gesturing at a good point here, which is for me, I see being a China specialist as you also have to learn about Russia. You also have to learn about Southeast Asia. You have to also know about the US. You can't just study China in vacuum. I think the first priority to at least consider is whether you want to invest in learning the language or not. And I've, I've talked to people who have gone both ways, some who have gone all in in terms of going to Tsinghua, taking intensive language courses and really trying to learn the language. And then others who have more tried to get a feel of landscape, maybe they've gone to China, but they haven't invested all their time in learning the language. And they are just really good at reading a bunch of the top English language, Chinese analysis of China, and then synthesizing from there, which I think both approaches can work. And this also is taking place in the backdrop of advances in neural machine translation, which yeah. just keeps getting better and better day by day. Interesting. So my advice would be if you have some of the language already or you have a strong passion to learn the language or you like learning languages to invest in learning Mandarin as much as you can, especially if you want to learn about tech in China. Because for me... I read probably 60 to 40 of my stuff in terms of learning about China's AI development is Mandarin to English. Yeah. So I think some of the best stuff is still in English, but there's just so much more stuff coming out every day in Mandarin about what is happening in China's AI scene. It's like if you're a German, you're not going to read Der Spiegel about what's happening in terms of Silicon Valley, even yeah. if Der Spiegel has a correspondent in Silicon Valley. Sure, mm-hmm. they may have like three people covering Silicon Valley in the US. You're going to read MIT Tech Review. You're going to read Bloomberg News. You're going to read New York Times. So if you want to learn about what's happening in China's AI scene, sure, those New York Times correspondents, Financial Times correspondents across China, they're doing great work and they're getting stories that you can't get in some of China's censored media. But for a massive scale effect, you should be reading Chinese language news or translations of Chinese language news. Yeah. But but it sounded like you might be saying that if you don't particularly like learning languages and you haven't started, then just wait for the for the AI <laughs> translation Honest, to come along. Honestly, the neural machine translation is getting really, really good. Mm. And it can augment translation capabilities to the point where you can build pipelines. And I think Center for Security Emerging Technology, one of the organizations I work with, is trying to build a more automated industrial scale pipeline for translation of these materials. I'm sure these exist across other institutions. And I think it can get to the point where you you can be someone who knows none of the language, but you have read all the best English language work on this. And then you can say, I want a translation of this thing, and then use that feed it through the pipeline and then work from there. Yeah. So, so I'm not, I'm a little bit agnostic between the choices, but just know that there is a trade-off with both. Interesting. So you're doing a whole bunch of translation kind of every week for your, for the, for the China AI newsletter. Yeah. Every Um, week, uh, translation, usually just of a piece that I found interesting or working with contributors for pieces that they pitch or working together on a joint translation. Yeah. How much can you just rely on the, on on the machine translation and kind of, do you notice that it's getting better and better just like literally over the period of a year? It got really good in 
summer of 2016, because I remember being in the embassy in Dakar, Senegal, where I was working for the State Department, and I was doing a lot of French-English translation, because yeah. a lot of the operating language there is in French. And I just saw a big jump yeah. in terms of the French, and then I was also reading some work in Chinese, and there was a big jump. And that was when Google Translate implemented neural machine translation. I don't know if it's gotten that much better since then, but it's to the point where every translation I start with plugging it into Google Translate and then correcting each line from there. Interesting. Is Chinese uh, easier or harder for uh, machine learning translation? I guess like some languages have more ambiguity, right? In, in like one word can mean many different things, which might yeah. trip up the algorithms. I wonder whether Ch- just China, Ch- Chinese have more or less of that than, uh, than English. So the first cut answer to that is it's much easier to do neural machine translation with high resource languages like Chinese and English because you just have more data yeah. on that versus some language, which we call low resource languages that are much more obscure or there's not as much text. But the deeper cut is that there are some difficulties in terms of idioms yeah. and phrases. Yeah, I guess what does it do when it encounters an idiom that doesn't exist in English? There's no, there's no correlate. I guess. That's yeah. Correct. So idioms, you have to correct line by line. Yeah. Um, and I just use a dictionary app, Pleco, and I just plug it in. So, I mean, I think there's an interesting phenomenon where now there's more loan words in Chinese from English. Oh. So fantasy is now like just there's a funtushi or there's a there's some chinese word that basically just spells out fantasy yeah. in the mandarin yeah so in the sense is that as you have more people working across both spaces and as the languages intermingle more it might just become easier to translate across so i guess it, it seems so you've kind of specialized in china and ai i guess like that's an area that's like big enough in itself so maybe if people yeah. are going to specialize become china specialists they have to like pick a speciality within China specialists, like maybe they could work on like farming issues within China, or it's like you know specific relations between like China and one other country. Because uh, there's so much going on, it's like you can't possibly specialize in China as a whole. Yeah. So I don't know how scalable this advice would be, but for me, I found that AI is nice because it's so broad. But then it, at least it marks it off so that you're not just studying everything about China. So I actually stayed away from a lot of the Hong Kong debate stuff. I, I used to work in Hong Kong for Hong Kong Legislative Council. It was mm. like very interested in Occupy Central Movement. It was actually like marching with people summer of 2014. But I've just stayed away because in this space, you have to try to limit what you're covering. Otherwise, yeah. it just becomes completely... Um, so just un- untenable. Yeah. So I, I do like half of my work specifically on China AI. The other half, I'm just lucky that I've been able to look at like broader technology and great power competition issues. So a lot of times those broader themes are influencing what's happening specifically, but then also sometimes a specific case in China and AI is also influencing my broader conception of mm-hmm. trends. So an example of that is I have gotten really interested in the Chinese attempts to build an industrial internet, which mm. is trying to connect a bunch of manufacturing devices and have them talk to each other. And that is a nice model of improvements in a capital goods industry and making machine tools better. And that connects to historical accounts of the American system of manufacturers and machine tools and how that was actually really key in our manufacturing revolution back in the 19th century, the late 19th century. So I think... Another piece of advice would be don't just study China. Um, Read the general academic literature in whatever field or specialty within China that you're interested in. 
Yeah, so one of the challenges with trying to become a China specialist is it's, it's not an established career path with like a clear progression. It's like, well, you study this and then you go into this internship and so on. So I'm kind of curious to know, how, how, yeah, what was the progression for you? How, how did you get into it? Because maybe that can be an example that other people can follow, at least in some parts. Well, I got really interested in this from high school policy debate yeah. where we'd have resolutions like the U.S. federal government should substantially increase its space development and or exploration. And it would be a year-long topic like that. And then almost every debate would involve some interaction with like China, like U.S.-China competition and what is China doing in space. And so I got really hooked from there. And then just being Chinese-American, it seemed natural to look at U.S.-China relations, thought I would have more of a something to contribute there, and then got interested in Chinese foreign policy, specifically in Africa. Mm-hmm. So that's what I studied for the MPhil at Oxford. It just so happened that there was a student group that ran an AI lab that mashed together machine learning PhD students with people with no technical background like myself and mm-hmm. put us together in groups to tackle AI for social good problems. And I got hooked on the technical stuff and learning more about the technology from there. And then, so I don't know how applicable this is because it's just a series of like random lucky opportunities. It just so happened that Future of Humanity Institute had a call out for interns and they had Mandarin expertise preferred or mm. China expertise preferred. Yeah. So I threw my hat in the ring. How much of a benefit do you think it is to have parents who grew up in China? Does that, does that give you a big advantage over people who just have like no particular connection to China? Well, maybe on some credibility level, because you look Chinese or you're of Chinese descent, people yeah. think you can be like a China whisperer of yeah. sorts. Um, on some level, it's a disadvantage because when you brief like generals, they're like, oh, so, it's the oh, Chinese it's influence it. campaign. Come, come to us in person. Yeah, that's quite dark. Yeah. Um, so I think it's it's a, it's a double-edged sword, but I think it, it is helpful in the sense that for me, a lot of my commentary also draws from the fact of my identity as a Chinese American. Yeah. So I think that I have more of a fuller understanding of what it means to be Chinese or just I'm more willing to think a lot of my work on at least Chinese views towards privacy or Chinese views on AI ethics consists of me saying Chinese people are humans too. And that helps when you are also a Chinese person um, (laughs) to like think of yourself as a human. So I think, I think I'm, I'm being a little bit like playful with this, but I do think there is something meaningful there of being of Chinese descent, being either Chinese American, British Chinese, and having that potential of understanding both sides. Yeah. Yeah. What organizations out there are doing work on China and AI, kind of other than the group that you're involved with in Oxford? Is it, I imagine it's a rapidly, rapidly growing space. Yeah. A lot of cool organizations are doing work here. Uh, New America has a DigiChina initiative led by Graham Webster, and they do translations of Chinese government policies and like technical standards framework. So I've done some translations for them. There's also the Center for Security and Emerging Technology affiliated with them. And they're also looking to scale up analysis about China's AI development. I think there's a range of think tanks in DC. And then a lot of companies are probably hiring in this space as well. I don't think I'm doing anything particularly like exceptional with the newsletter, but just mm-hmm. from the demand for the newsletter shows me that I think there's a lot of demand in the space. Yeah, so I suppose it seems like there's been an explosion of newsletters uh, to do with AI and effective altruism and maybe China as well. Is that still a good way to, to advance your career, to, to create a newsletter that, that adds some value for people? Or maybe is, is there too many of them now? So. 
often. Yeah, we might be reaching we <laughs> newsletter might be, saturation. Yeah, yeah I, I think people were saying that about podcasts. Yeah, <laughs> a couple <laughs> no, of years ago. Absolutely. But, I mean, yeah, you all are, are doing amazing, and like, <laughs> there's more and more podcasts popping up. So I think it's the same thing with newsletters. I work with Substack, and they make it really easy to just do your own newsletter. And I think I've always been interested in blogging, so I kept yeah. a blog since I think undergrad, first year of undergrad. So I see the newsletter as basically the new model for a blog, yeah. just to get your blog to an audience who's super interested in your work yeah. rather than put your blog out there right. and then say, go there. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess podcasts have just gotten more and more specialized perhaps over time. It's like you have to like carve out a new niche, but that's actually really great because it means you can potentially reach like the thousand people who are most interested in your like very specific say policy area. And that's like yeah. the conversation that you want to be part of. It's, yeah. yeah. For my, for I experimented with one podcast for China AI and our pitch was, this is for like the 50 government bureaucrats <laughs> who are really interested in getting in depth on AI talent policy. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. If there are 50 people who think you have something interesting to say, maybe invest some time in figuring out how to say that. Well, yeah. I suppose if there's only 50 people you need to reach, then it's very easy to do your promotion. You just like email them every week. About yeah. <laughs> you yeah. should subscribe to the show. Yeah. Friend them on Facebook. Or... Yeah. Uh, are there any um, university courses that are worth highlighting for people who want to become channel specialists and maybe who don't want to go to ch- like China to, to study for a long time? Perhaps because they have concerns mm. about, say, security clearance or, or just for whatever practical reason? Yeah. So I think... I think it's John Hopkins Sice School has a good course and it's one year in DC and then you can also do a year in Nanjing. It's an optional course that they have like an arrangement. That's a good start, I think. I mean, there's a, there's a whole field of Chinese studies. Yeah. So I think you some of the UC schools, University of California schools are good on this. Uh, in the UK, you have the School of Oriental and Asian Studies that yeah. has probably one of the best libraries of materials on China. So here, um, Oxford also has a China Center. So I think there's going to be, hopefully, more of these institutions popping up. Yeah. Do you think it would be useful for kind of relations between China and the US to have more people moving between the two countries? I guess especially maybe having uh, Westerners go to go to China and like living there for a long long time, which is a which is a bit less common perhaps than the reverse. Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting it's an interesting question because they've done studies of the effect of short-term study abroads yeah. on people's perceptions mm. of nationalism and the country that they study abroad in. Yeah. And there's a study by Jones in International S- Studies Quarterly. I think it's a 2011 or 2014 study it was published. And this was an s- experiment with students selected for study abroad before and after their study abroad in China, I believe. And the finding was the students coming back actually became more nationalistic, so ah. more proud to be American because they saw the differences with another country. But it's what he calls an enlightened nationalism. Yeah. So they were more nationalistic and proud to be from the U.S., but for I think the question was, how tolerant are you of a conflict between your home country and your host country? Yeah. They're much less likely to be tolerant of a conflict or yeah so it's what he calls an enlightened nationalism effect from but this is just short-term study i don't know what the effects of uh, long-term moving would be yeah i'd be very interested is is that a published paper yeah just look at that yeah Yeah. i think if you just search enlightened nationalism calvert jones he's at university of maryland yeah, that's interesting. I guess, uh, yeah, having lived overseas, I, I I do appreciate a little bit more about what what I like about Australian culture and what's distinctive about it. But I guess it also makes sense. It becomes like much harder to imagine going to war with another country that, you, that you've been living in where you have right. friends in. It's just, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. 
Are there any conferences people who want to become China specialists should should be attending? I guess possibly that there are hundreds of them, so, but any ones you'd yeah. like to highlight? So there's, I think it's just maybe like Chinese studies conferences. There's also, I think within the effective altruism space, there's a, an effective altruism Chinese group. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't really, I'm not like a big conference person, so okay. I don't really know <laughs> that many conferences off the top of my head. Yeah. What about any conferences around China and AI? Does that is there a thing for that yet, or is uh, yet yet to be developed? What's there, that? There's a Digi China is hosting a conference China, right, on yeah. AI in China. Okay, and I, I don't know if it's I don't know if registrations are closed yet, but I think it's happening recently. Uh, it's happening soon, and I think they're going to host more of them. Okay, great. Yeah, so, we'll try, try to find a link to that. Yeah. And stick it in the stick it in the show yeah. notes. Yeah. Are there any areas of knowledge about China that you think are particularly lacking in the United States, where someone could just like go and learn about this and then you know fill a fill an important niche? Yeah, I think the first cut is that the China AI model, which is just translating the best research and analysis in China on a subject every week or on a regular basis, can be applied to basically every domain. So I've thought about applying it to basically reading the best international relations research coming out of China. And it's happening on journals that are in Chinese language. It's also happening in blogs and different WeChat public accounts that I look at. Mm -hmm. You could just do that model for Chinese foreign policy, stuff on Belt Road Initiative, Mm. cybersecurity. So I think the model scales in terms of subjects that I think are really important, but I think are undercovered is I'm more focused on the technology space. So maybe like technology and society. So we talk a lot about technology on a nation state level. And that's actually what I focus on a lot in my research, but there's a lot of interesting stuff on the relationship between technology and individuals. Mm. And so we throw around terms like techno-nationalism, which is often about like nation states competing over technology. But there's something interesting within techno-nationalism about how the Chinese public thinks about technology. And that's often lost. And I think there's something, there's a lot of things that could be unique, could be similar across countries, but understanding how the Chinese public thinks about technology, I think is another cool space. Are there any books on China that you'd particularly recommend that listeners check out? I'm, I'm, I'm halfway through this uh, Deng Xiaoping and the Transformation of China book and uh, mm. really enjoying it. Although that's maybe a bit, it's a bit more historical than it is about uh, China today. Yeah, that's cool. I haven't read that one. I am reading uh, Matt Sheehan, who's a good friend of mine at Macro Polo. We've done some work together in the space. He came out with a book called The Trans-Pacific Experiment. Mm. And it talks about how China and the U.S. cooperate and collaborate across a wide variety of domains, but there's a chapter on AI and technological innovation. I got halfway through The Party by Richard McGregor, who's a longtime foreign correspondent in China, and he dives deep into what the role of the Chinese party actually is. Yeah. The separate role for the government versus the party structure. Yeah, my uh, my colleague Neil Bauman was telling me about that book and recommending it. Uh, yeah. I was, I was uh, very sad to find out that there's no audiobook version, so I actually ah. have to find the patience to sit down and read a, a real book <laughs> on paper. <laughs> All right, so you may not be a conference person, but we're going to have to get you back to uh, EA Global so you can give your your presentation in a minute. Actually, what, what's what's the presentation you're giving in in uh, about? The presentation is going to be about redeciphering China's AI dream. So two yeah. years on, what are the new <laughs> research questions we should be asking, and how was I wrong? And yeah, basically what to do to move the field forward, in my opinion, in terms of having dealing with problems like the technology abstraction problem, the China abstraction problem, techno-nationalist assumptions, a lot of things that we talked about. 
Nice, yeah. If the video for that is up, we'll stick a link to it up uh, in, the, in the blogs posted in the show notes. People can, people can check out what you're about to, about to present. Cool. I guess a final question is, uh, you're reasonably active on Twitter, and I saw that you seem to kind of post almost every day about what what work you've done that day. Is that right? Is this kind of some kind of commitment contract you have to like, if you're like being public about what you've accomplished and not accomplished, it encourages you to get more work done? Or have I misunderstood? No, this is just like a week-long fad where okay. <laughs> um, I, I read something about, a friend sent me something about how a big part of the millennial burnout culture is because we don't think about how we're influencing other people's burnout. Mm. So this week, I basically just tried to post things about how I'm actually not being productive and not <laughs> publishing anything and uh, like wasting a lot of time to yeah. like have people give themselves a little bit of grace that on Twitter, you usually see people just killing it yeah, and yeah. like publishing 17 <laughs> different books in one day. But for me, I talk about how I wasted a bunch of time refreshing my email. Yeah. <laughs> and it's okay for you to do that as well. Yeah. People don't post about how they got up really late because they couldn't, couldn't be by. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Listeners, I got up at 10.30 this morning. <laughs> not Certainly not, not all that productive. Got up just in time to, to make this interview. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, my guest today has been uh, Jeff Ding. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Jeff. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Rob. Sure there'll be a lot more to talk about with China and AI in the, in the coming years and decades. For sure. Okay, uh, now we've got a 20-minute extract from Jeff's talk, uh, Redeciphering China's AI Dream, a new China AI research agenda. Uh, thanks to Jeff and the uh, EA Global team for allowing us to stick it in the podcast here. A year and a half ago, I published a paper called Deciphering China's AI Dream, just trying to get a descriptive overview of what is happening in China's AI landscape. Because I'm really good at creatively naming things, this talk is called Redeciphering China's AI Dream and pointing towards stuff I got wrong, stuff I think we should be researching in the future. So the motivation is that this is not just about finding out what is happening in China's AI development. That in and of itself, the first layer, is really, really important. I think China is an indispensable player in AI governance, ensuring that advances from AI will benefit all of humanity and preventing risks from that development. So I think they're an indispensable nation. That's a term by former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright in the U.S., where she talks about transitioning the U.S. from an hegemon to an indispensable nation, where the U.S. is involved and has to have a seat at the table in a lot of these conversations. And I think that's the case for China as well, for two reasons. First is that China, probably by most accounts, is the second leading power in the world, and also has the internet giants that are where a lot of the AI research is happening and where a lot of the AI capabilities are located. So that's number one, capabilities. I think you can dis disagree about the capabilities point and people can debate that over and we will actually go into some of the, those debates here today. But point number two is even if you think China's capabilities don't mean that it has to be an indispensable nation in AI governance, it's perceived as a rising power and other countries will use China as a bogeyman type of figure or as a frame to motivate their own AI development, most notably in the case of the United States. So conversations about centralizing the US 5G infrastructure, the motivations for that were concerns about AI's development. Mark Zuckerberg and his leaked testimony notes on it says like, don't talk about breaking up Facebook and AI giants and tech giants uh, because we need to compete with China. So second motivation for why we need a better understanding of China's AI development is it can shed light on China as a key actor in the international system. Um, what does China want? What are the implications for power transition, uh, relations with the US, relations with the EU, uh, how it will contribute to the international order? 
And third, I think it can tell us something about broader landscape of how technology um, affects global change. And throughout the presentation, I'm going to look at one slice of this, which is technology and national power. Um, but there are different ways of cutting that technology and people's perceptions of technology, um, technology and relations between people and machines. But it goes deeper than just what is happening in China on AI. And hopefully this presentation will give a sense of that. So I think in those three layers, uh, China as an indispensable player in AI governance, what I'm going to talk about is two problems, the tech abstraction problem and the China abstraction problem. Uh, and then I'm going to talk about how those fuel memes about AI arms races and kind of what China's AI dream means in an interdependent world. And then finally, I'm going to talk about the technological change and the rise and fall of great powers. Um, so here is the AI potential index from Deciphering China's AI Dream uh, report a year and a half ago. And I think it is a good capture. It captures nicely how I was thinking about technology in a very abstract way, especially AI, which has become this magic catch-all term um, where anything is AI and AI is nothing at all. So the idea was here, we were trying to come up with a rough approximation of a country's AI potential. So we take a cut of hardware metrics, we take a cut of data, research and algorithms, commercial AI sector, and we try to come up with indicators that give a good proxy for where countries are in these different capabilities. The conclusion is that China's rough national AI capabilities are about half of that of the United States. I think this is like not a good approximation. And it was meant to be a first coast, meant to give an overall picture of what if a country devoted all of its resources to building advanced AI systems or pursuing an artificial, generally, uh, artificial general intelligence agent. Another example of abstraction, technology abstraction, is here is the Department of Commerce proposed rules for export controls uh, to identify emerging technologies that are essential to U.S. national security. So in these rules, there's 14 categories of technologies. One category is AI. There's other categories like biotechnology. Another category was robotics. Another category was advanced surveillance technologies. And what I'm trying to argue here is that we really do not have a good sense of what we're talking about when we say AI, or the US government, or me, or I think a lot of people in this space. Because when we're talking about when the US Commerce Department puts together a rule that was probably researched a lot, there's a lot of staff people there, they, got, they, have, they have jobs to do, and all the kinds of AI that are put under that list range from fundamental models fuzzy, like branches of fuzzy mathematics, specific classes of algorithms to specific hardware. You could even argue the other categories would be subsumed under, under AI, is robotics AI, advanced surveillance technologies, and corporate, incorporate AI more and more. So just giving you a sense of this is a slippery target that we're trying to analyze. So when we, when we talk about China's AI dream, what are we actually talking about? So I'm sure... I think in my slide notes, I was supposed to talk about like in vacation Bible school growing up, we learned like this song about like how there's a fountain flowing deep and wide. And so every time you all talk about, you think of technology as an independent variable, I want everyone to think about technology as a variable that is both deep and wide. And the idea here is two years later, um, in written testimony before the US-China Economic and Security Commission, they asked me to assess China's national AI capabilities. So I get another crack at the problem with one and a half years more experience and hopefully a little bit more wisdom. And the idea is, let's actually tackle the technology abstraction problem at its root. 
I think that with technology and with AI, you have to divide it up in terms of what level of depth of AI are you talking about. So are, are we talking about the foundational layer of the AI value chain, AI open source software, uh, deep learning frameworks like PyTorch, TensorFlow? Uh, of those, a white paper has shown that 66% of those are developed by U.S. companies. Those have a strategic advantage for those companies because people get used to coding on those. They want to work for those companies, and they're more used to working for those companies. They become a way for those companies to benefit from, from network effects to improve all of their models because there's so many people making improvements to them and a way to recruit talent. So that matters. AI open source software matters. At another level of depth of the value chain, you have the technology layer. So what are the, what are the algorithms, algorithms that you're licensing to different companies? Third layer, you have the application layer, um, the smart speakers products, the hardware products that are actually being sold. Um, so that's one way to slice it along depth. And it can even go deeper than that. So um, a lot of people compare, let's say, AI is a general purpose technology. So if we talk about general purpose technologies, we're talking not just about the application layer, the technology layer, the deeper foundational level layer, but we're also talking about technology as a system, a, a system that, so other general purpose technologies like electricity, it's not just about the electric dynamo, it's not just about the electric utility, it's about how the utility connects to the factory to power individual electricity generators that are funneled through transformers and funneled through an entire system of electricity generation, distribution, and transmission and consumption. So this is, this is a problem of depth, and it's also a problem of width. So AI is a broad category that encompasses a bunch of different domains. Chinese natural language processing has much different implications than English natural processing, uh, natural language processing. You might, if you say Chinese NLP is better than American NLP, what type of NLP are you talking about? Can we measure different countries' capabilities in specific domains of AI uh, and there will probably be, vari be variation between those different domains. So a second problem, I think, in this space is what I call the China abstraction problem. Uh, the idea is that China is not a monolithic actor, and this has meaningful implications for governance. So this is one example, and I like to use the standard space as an example. T technical standards, the work of bureaucrats, uh, companies, industry alliances to shape what are the rules that govern different products and systems as they go online to different markets? These standards are billion-dollar decisions. One popular Chinese saying is that third-tier companies make products, second-tier companies make platforms, first-tier companies make standards. Microsoft Word is dominant because there's a Word document formatting standard that they achieved. They were the first to go to market with, and it spread. So this is obviously a very important domain. And there's actually a lot, there's conflict and there's cross-cutting cleavages within the Chinese technology space in terms of which companies are siding with who on standards. So this is an interesting case where Lenovo, a Chinese company, votes in favor of Qualcomm, a U.S. company, on a key standard for polar coding that's going to be important for 5G, which is an enabling application for a bunch of uh, autonomous, for autonomous vehicles, for a bunch of AI applications. So there was a big debate in China about it when this was leaked out, 
and Lenovo had to issue a public apology, say that they didn't actually vote against Huawei. But these types of disputes and debates and cross-cutting cleavages, strategic alliances between Chinese companies and other companies are happening all the time underneath the surface. And we should, we should not just say China wants to do this with AI or China has an AI dream. Um, we should specify who are the specific actors with the China, within China that have specific intentions and capabilities. But we have to say China AI dream to make it a sexy title and get people to read the report. So I'm not going to apologize for that. My argument is that these abstractions and and I don't want to say that we shouldn't be abstract. I think that being parsimonious is important for communication, to write headlines. You can't just like, you can't specify everything. Um, sometimes you just had eggs for breakfast. You don't need to tell people um, the type of eggs or that was a bad analogy. Um, but the idea is that these two problems are intermingled with another dangerous set of assumptions, sometimes useful set of assumptions, but oftentimes dangerous, which is techno-nationalism. And sometimes people just throw around the phrase techno-nationalism. This is coined by Robert Reich, labor advisor for President Clinton, uh, to actually refer to U.S. policy in response to Japan's technological challenge. So it's actually really relevant to the current debates right now. And as you see in that Brookings report, in AI, who's going to dominate in the era of industrial AI, and the argument is that China is inventing a kind of techno-nationalism. And so what do we mean by techno-nationalism? Um, I think that we should clearly specify what we're talking about. So one is the belief that technological strength and security are key drivers of interstate competition. I call that the techno-competition belief. And I think largely most countries believe in this. Uh, second is techno-independence. Some degree of technological autonomy is key to technological strength and security. So some countries might believe that autarky is the way to go. Um, so that's a very strong sense of techno-independence. A weaker sense might be we need to not be dependent on a sole source supplier of, say, semiconductor chips. We need to diversify our supplies so that we can be cut off. Some degree of autonomy and freedom. And the third is the techno-nation belief. The idea that the nation state is the primary unit of relevance for technology policy. And I think just to give a sense for how baked in these assumptions are, I think probably everybody in this room believes that um, national R&D, the amount of national R&D that you spend is probably correlated with your economic growth. Or like that spending more on innovation at the national level will lead to national economic strength in some form. Actually, that's like disputed in the literature, that we have good sense that global innovation tracks with global economic growth. But there's arguments to be made that national level innovation, national investments in R&D might not necessarily translate to national level growth. And one example is that just technology diffusion happens much easier these days. We live in a world of global innovation networks where knowledge is being shared. So it's not clear the extent to which the benefits of technological development are captured within the nation state container. So that's the framework for what we're talking about when we talk about techno-nationalism. All of those beliefs are rational in some sense, and it's, an, it's a way of understanding and thinking about the world that can be useful. Sometimes, though, when it's, it can be very much distorted, and I give examples of distortion in each of these spaces. So one example is a distortion of the techno-competition meme. To have a good sense of how technology is an interstate, a driver of interstate conflict, you have to have a good sense of assessing where the technology is, how technology is actually incorporated into power. Whereas the meme now is that this is a Sputnik moment, China's advances in AI represent a Sputnik moment for an AI arms race. 
It's unclear what these commentators think we're racing over. Is it a specific, discrete weapon output? Is it about incorporating and enabling AI across a wide range of military applications, uh, including the non-sexy stuff like better logistics and communications and intelligence transmission? Is it about a broader industrial competition of AI? Uh, and, and the idea is that there, the, these Cold War analogies sometimes fall apart because there's not something countable. It's not about who has more ICBMs. I think that the more relevant aspects of competition are going to be about the different types of technological systems that develop, which we'll talk about later. The second is techno-independence. So the idea is that because of China's innovation mercantilism, um, strategy in spaces like artificial intelligence, the, I think they're the Information Technology Innovation Foundation, ITIF, one of the alphabet soup of DC think tanks that are often very prevalent in the space. Um, their vice president has recommended that in response, the US should suspend all scientific and other technical cooperation with China. So that's one model of techno independence in response to what's perceived as innovation mercantilism. Uh, president Trump uh, tweeted, I think, months earlier, basically ordering U.S. companies to get out of China. And the idea is that to what extent can the U.S. maintain its technological independence is the solution to cut off everything. So this is an example of which these, these memes can be distorted. Suspending scientific and technological cooperation would probably also hurt U.S. companies and the U.S. innovation pipeline and also removes a good channel for uh, encouraging trust and cooperation in the space. Uh, Matthew Evangelista, scholar at Cornell, has written a book about the Pugwash movement in the context of the Cold War, where US and Soviet scientists and physicists uh, meeting in the Pugwash conference and having side talks and back channel negotiations, he argues, was a crucial channel to reduce Cold War tensions. The third distortion is in the techno-nation space. And this, uh, this is the idea that technological innovation maps perfectly onto the landscape of nation-states. So Kai-Fu Lee in the New York Times um, editorial, he basically says that countries who are dependent on the supply of AI algorithms from other countries' firms will have to negotiate with the countries themselves. Not understanding, or not, at, at least in my opinion, giving weight to the fact that these companies themselves will have interest to operate in other countries that the Facebooks and the Googles and the Microsofts of the world do not see themselves as in, like mapping perfectly onto the interests of the nation state. And I think there's important differences there that we should acknowledge. So now just to try to connect a lot of the things, I've thrown a lot of concepts at you, I've thrown a lot of terms at you, I've thrown some examples at you, um, some jokes that did not land very well. Um, and now to connect all the dots I think the idea is that to tackle technology abstraction problem, to look at specifically what these have to say for the nation state and what these say for stuff that goes beyond the national container, uh, we have to adopt a technological systems approach for understanding how technology and global change intersect. And the idea is that if you look back at the second industrial revolution, this was late half of the 19th century, the argument here for most scholars is that this was an area of Britain's relative decline and the US and Germany taking control in industrial power, technological power, leaping ahead of Britain. And the explanation for why it happens oftentimes is 
the sexy new industries of the time, electricity, chemical industries, Germany was ahead in all these new industries. Steel is often mentioned. Germany's steel output leapt forward by bounds during this time period. I think those accounts get it wrong. I think they overemphasize the new t industries that took a really, really long time to diffuse, and they probably didn't make an impact on productivity until after 1914. And I think they're missing some of these less sexy, less visible, less consumer-facing systems. And one system was the American system of manufacture, uh, where you actually had machine tools that enabled the production of sewing machines, bicycles, automobiles, small arms, small firearms, all with interchangeable parts, all cut precisely with new like turret lathes, um, milling machines that could like form things really precisely. Um, and a lot of scholars point to this American system of manufacture as being the key to advances in manufacturing productivity and the U.S. increase in technological power during this period. So if we get to this level of technology, of understanding technology, where we're talking about systems, not just buzzwords, what can we think about in terms of China's AI development? And I would point towards maybe there's something like, what are the American systems of manufacturing that could exist in China today or will exist in China in the future. I think one potential example is the industrial internet, the notion of connecting a bunch of devices in manufacturing workroom floors and having them talk to each other, getting much more granular predictive analytics about when we need to do maintenance on these. All very boring topics, but also very exciting for people who are thinking about how technological systems will impact interstate competition and how we think about power. Um, and so uh, this was one of the latest issues of the China AI newsletter where we talked, where I looked at a translation about CASIC cloud, SASIC cloud. And CASIC is like a one, uh, one of the key like state-owned enterprises who does a lot of tech stuff. And they're trying to build an industrial internet platform, um, have built one. And they're in competition with Siemens, the, which has their own system, and General Electric, which coined the term industrial internet and came out first with the Predict system. You know, just as an indicator of how important this stuff is, when Siemens and SASIC Cloud work together um, to sign an agreement, again, going back to questioning technonational frames and seeing that there's a lot of things happening underneath the surface of interstate competition, but when they signed an agreement to work together on these platforms, guess who was also there at the signing ceremony? President Xi Jinping and Angela Merkel. So I ran through this um, with all these kind of abstract terms and concepts and a roadmap for redeciphering China's AI dream, just with the example of technological competition and kind of uh, power in mind. You could apply this framework to a bunch of other things, like what surveillance has for implications for authoritarian resilience, for disproportionately targeting ethnic minorities, like is happening with Uyghurs in Xinjiang. You could apply it to a bunch of different interesting research questions in this space. I just ran through it because this is my interest, my default research on uh, technological power and competition in this space. But the idea is that this is a general model um, for looking at what are the problems in research, how we can, how we can do better, and how we can uh, redecipher China's AI dream. So thanks. Just a reminder about our recently updated article, What's the Best Charity to Give to?, uh, which we've linked to in the show notes. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris, audio mastering by Ben Cordell, and transcriptions by Zachy Allhack. Thanks for joining, and talk to you in a week or two.